If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Julian here, or you might know me from Haunting Phil House. I love horror. I definitely have so much fun doing horror movies and TV shows. Just anything horror. So, I recently just got to go to the arcade with my friend from Haunting, Olive slash Abigail. And she's definitely still real. Do you not believe me? Because nobody believes me. I hope your podcast goes really great and bye. They've conquered the big screen. Now, get ready for the spin-off sure to send chills down your spine. It's Nico, Brian, Mike, and Dustin in Don't Go Out There, the series. Welcome back, everybody, to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Just want to thank all of our fans and listeners. Really appreciate the support. You guys are awesome. Before we get into tonight's film review, just want to give a quick shout-out to our website, don'tgooutthere.com. Everything about our podcast is on the website. All of our episodes and interviews, if you want to check those out, we've done some incredible interviews in the past. Go check them out there in a specific tab by themselves so you don't have to scroll through hundreds of episodes on Apple or Spotify, etc., we also have our store if you want to grab a shirt, a mouse pad, a hat, all that good stuff. We'd love to see your pictures, you know, rep your favorite podcast. And Chan's Etsy page is also attached if you want to grab a Tumblr. All of our social media links are on there as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. Like us, subscribe us, follow us, all that good stuff. And the last thing I want to shout out on our website is our Patreon. We call it Blood Donors. Uh, we you know we have the traditional monthly reoccurring kind. If you want to support us, help us pay the bills, as we say. Or if you want, if there's a movie you want us to review, that option is available as well. Uh, just check out our website, don'tgooutthere.com. Also, if you haven't noticed, we've recently joined the Believe Network. So there's some ads on our program now. But if you want ad-free content, go check us out on Blood Donors. The ad-free episodes will be available there. We appreciate your support. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the first episode of DGOT, the series, where we review TV and streaming shows. We really appreciate y'all tuning in. We're really excited to do this. Uh, guys, y'all got any opening thoughts before we just uh, announce the first series we're doing? No, man, I'm excited to do it. Yeah, I'm excited. This is, uh, you know, like we've said, we've been trying to figure out how we're going to cover some of these series throughout the you know past few years or whatever. And so, yeah, I'm excited to get into this, especially this one, because I'd never seen it. So go ahead and kick us off. Nice. Yeah, uh, the first series we're reviewing is the one that I chose, uh, The Haunting of Hill House by Mike Flanagan. came out in 2018. Uh, this was actually one of my birthday bonuses I picked, I think, two years ago, maybe. But as we got closer and closer to my birthday, we're like, this is kind of overwhelming to do in one episode, a whole series. <laughs> so uh, yeah. we kind of backed off of that. But I'm really excited to break down this series and every every series we do just because it's a new challenge and it's fun uh so yeah uh did y'all have dustin you said you hadn't seen it did you have any like uh initial thoughts just on the first two episodes yeah so the first episode i thought was cool it wasn't groundbreaking but right. uh i was like okay it's it's enough to hold my interest the second episode i liked a lot better and then the third episode which we're not covering tonight but the third episode 
I don't know how I stand on it actually. So I'm I'm really excited to see how this series plays uh plays out because for me personally, it's kind of been a roller coaster. Like we started off at a level, then we took it up a level, then we went back down a level a little bit. And so I'm curious how episodes four through t- uh, uh, ten, I think, I'm curious how these are going to play out. Brian, you had seen this series before. Uh, what are your th- your few thoughts on you know just revisiting the first couple episodes? Yeah, and you know this series was actually my introduction into the Flanagan verse. I mean, it was definitely the first thing I ever saw that he wrote. I fell in love with the dude's work. Probably not as much as Kate Siegel fell in love with the dude's work, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, since then, since then, obviously, I've seen Oculus and Doctor Sleep and the rest of his masterpieces. And so far, in my opinion, this guy does not miss. So, needless to say, I love the show. The cast is fantastic. I'd say this is a great show to start off with. But I've got a sneaking suspicion, much like the movie reviews, like we may end up revisiting this down the road. If, uh, but I hope we do it justice this go around. Um, but yes, I have seen it. I loved it, but it has been such a long time since I've seen it. So I'm looking forward to going through it again with these guys because I mean, there's a ton that I don't remember, including episode three. Like I, and, and there's, there's something that I do get into my notes here that I'm like, man, I cannot remember what happens to this person. So I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad we're doing this. No, I'm with you. Cause I had seen this already too, but you know, I posted, on my Instagram and, you know, Facebook and all that. But it's been almost three years to the day that it's been since I watched this. So, you know, I'm familiar with the characters, but like the individual stories and all that, yeah, I had forgotten a lot. So it, it really was good to just revisit because, you know, like we mentioned, you know, like in our screen reviews and stuff like that in the past, like you fall in love with these characters and you're attached to these people. And right. uh, that's what revisiting this show is like. I really love these characters and this like, we did our top 10 women in horror. I think I had Victoria Pedretti number two. This is the the show that made me fall like in love with her as a, as a character and an actor. She's great as Nelly. And uh, I'm really excited to get into it. Any more thoughts where you just get into the scene by scene? I'll say that when I posted initially that we're going to be covering the show, uh, I had a lot of people reply to my, when I posted my Instagram story, I had a lot of people reply to it saying how much they love the show. And so I'm, Really excited to do this to, you know, hopefully I love it as much as everyone else seems to. I think, honestly, once we get to the end of it, you'll appreciate the beginning a lot more just because it ties everything together. You have an attachment to the characters and all that. But let's jump into the scene by scene. The show starts with narration from Stephen Crane with outside visuals of Hill House. We see the inside of Hill House and pictures of the family. We see young Stephen in bed who awakes hearing a girl crying. He exits his room to check it out. Nellie tells him he's scared. She saw the bent neck lady. Their dad, Hugh, checks on her and comforts her, saying Big Brother scared her away. Hugh talks to Nellie about her dream spilling into reality. She asks how long they have to live here. Hugh heads back to bed, but stops as he overhears Shirley talking in her sleep. He checks on Nellie and Luke one more time and heads to bed. Olivia asks him if everyone is alive. Nellie sits up hearing her door open. Nellie lies down and we see the bent neck lady appear behind her. Opening credits roll and title card. Miss Walker is sitting with Stephen. She begins telling her story of her husband's death and how she saw her husband hanging upside down from her ceiling. She couldn't scream and could only stare. The car horn came from his mouth, not screams. She ran out of the room in fear. It was the last night she slept in that room. Stephen says he wants to set up equipment and sleep in the room. He can't guarantee he'll share the story in his book, but he appreciates her sharing it. He looks at her bookcase and she says she's a fan and Hill House was her favorite book. He says he's never seen a ghost and she's got him beat. She hopes her car will appear so he can see a ghost as Steven denies a call from Nelly. That's the first scene. Brian, what'd you think? So right off the bat, this opening with Steven narrating the first paragraph of Shirley Jackson's novel, which by the way, this whole thing was based on. I did not know that, (laughs) that that was the actual book and the novel that this was based on. So very nice touch of, of having at least the whole first paragraph read here. Um, this whole thing basically uses language to make Hill House a character of its own. Like we talk so much about in our movie reviews about the music and things like that. But, you know, we definitely find out that, you know, that it is the case, that it is a, a character of its own. And that starts right here in this group of scenes, I think. Um, one thing I, I love that Flanagan also does is this use of statues throughout the house, uh, kind of getting you accustomed to seeing human forms like subconsciously throughout I didn't know until I started doing research on this just how many ghosts 
Flanagan putting the corners all throughout. I mean, even as early as this set of scenes, in fact, there are actually seven hidden ghosts in this episode alone. And according to IMDb, there's up to like 30 hidden ghosts in the corners throughout something I never saw, like I said, but I guess subconsciously, maybe I did. I would like to point out that I thought it was kind of funny when Steven was asked what woke him up. I wish he would have been like, dude, was I the only one hearing that crying? Like, why the fuck do you think I'm up? <laughs> I thought that was a pretty dumb question. Uh, shout out to Henry Thomas Elliott from E.T. Uh, met him at Pensacon. Uh, also want to shout out our boy Julian Hilliard, young Luke, who did an intro for us way back on Color Out of Space and for Conjuring 3. And lastly, opening one of my favorite actresses out there right now, McKenna Grace, young Theo. Phoebe Spingler herself in Ghostbusters 3 and 4. Love this cast. And last thing, listen, as a dad with a little girl about Nellie's age right now and a son around young Steven's age, like it doesn't take much for me for it to suck me into this and have me just automatically have overwhelming emotion towards these kids and this family right off the bat. But me, as a dad, I'm going to get in the bed with little Nell and laying down with her till she's back asleep. That's parenting 101. Just saying, all right, nothing's in here. Good night. Going to bed. Sorry. That's just, I wouldn't have handled it that way. So, um, first of all, as I started reading my notes for this first group of scenes, I realized that early in this first episode, I didn't know these kids' names for shit. So, I referred to them as kid a lot. So, watch the episode and you'll know who I'm talking about. Um, we get a cool monologue to welcome us in and kind of lay the groundwork for the show, giving us some history of the house. I really enjoyed that. And kid one, this kid's different than I am. Should I wake up mom and dad? Hell yeah. That's that's not my problem to deal with. Hell yeah, wake up mom and dad. And then we see the kid that's got the Ninja Turtles pillowcase. That is fire. I still have a blanket from my childhood that's got that same pattern on it. That blanket is scratchy as fuck. I don't know how we used to cuddle up in those things, but love seeing that. That was cool. Very nostalgic for me. And then how many damn kids these people have? That was the first thought I had. Man can pull out or man can do everything in the world except for pull out. It appears I get it, but Jesus Christ, give her a break. Uh, I do like how the camera shot lingered in the hallway after he got the kids to sleep. Uh, but it was kind of anticlimactic. I expected something to come of that, but it didn't. But I, it was really effective, though, because it, it like draw me. I was glued to the TV wondering. But then after the kid gets back in bed, the kid's door creaks open, which is awesome. We're getting to the action. We get a creepy score accompanying the creepy woman leaning into the shot behind the little girl. Good enough open before the title card and credits. It has my attention, like I said. Uh, Miss Walker telling the story goes on a little long for me. It wasn't the best acting, or maybe it was just how it was written. I don't know, but something felt off about it. I didn't love that. But then when Steven is at her house, I realize it is her acting. It's not great. It feels like she's acting and not talking, if that makes sense. Like it, you know, it doesn't feel like she's being natural in that moment. Uh, at this point, I'll be honest, I'm not 100% sold on the show so far, but I'm not taken out of it either. Just kind of waiting for something to move me in either direction. But overall, it was, a, it was an okay set of scenes to open us up. Young Nellie asks to sleep on the couch tonight in case the bent neck lady comes back. Olivia sleeps on the floor beside Nellie for a bit, but sneaks up to her room after a kiss. Nellie wakes up breathing heavily. She lays frozen as the bent neck lady hovers her body. Nellie calls Shirley now, who denies her call. Shirley sits with Max on the floor, attempting to comfort him to approve of a viewing for Grandma. Max's grandma sits by his bed, touching his hair every night, and she doesn't blink. Charlie listens to the voicemail from Nellie who expresses concern over Luke. She calls Nellie back to no success and remembers a previous event at Hill House hearing Kevin hanging a picture. Mr. Dudley gives Charlie a key that she tells Nellie is a master key for any door in the house. They attempt to open the red door, but no luck. None of the keys work and Nellie says, just use the big hammer. They run off and we see shadows walking in the room. Charlie calls Stephen and expresses concern over Nellie's call and about Luke. The two start to argue and she hangs up on Steven in frustration. Miss Walker brings Steven tea as he sets up his camera equipment. Steven calls Nellie, but voicemail again. He says Luke's fine in rehab and he'll be around tomorrow if she needs to chat. He goes back in Miss Walker's house with more equipment. Theo Crane is at the bar getting a martini looking around for a potential mate. She spots Trish at the bar and they lock eyes. The two dance and we see them in bed now making coitus, both seemingly having a great time. Trish asks Theo her story and begins telling her story. Theo puts her gloves on saying she's a germaphobe and, and passive aggressively kicks her out. 
Trish leaves her number and asks if she said something wrong. She makes awkward eye contact with Shirley as she leaves. Theo sits with Shirley, sharing a drink on the porch. Theo and Nell haven't talked in a long time and ask Shirley what's wrong with her. One foot and crazy, the other on a banana pill. That's Nell's life. Theo keeps telling Shirley she needs boundaries with Luke and Nellie. All right, Brian, it's the next set of scenes. What do you think? At the start of this with, with Nell sleeping on the couch, I wonder if having on that red robe is symbolic of the red room. I mean, maybe slowly consuming her. Mm. I don't know. Then we get this mm. fucking incredible cinematography from Flanagan and cinematographer Mike Fimaganari, uh, and get that 45 degree turn right into that bent neck lady. Woo. That was a terrifying shot. I thought then we transition into Pandretti's Nelly with the car horns in the distance, just like that lady was telling Steven about in her story. The last set of scenes with the car horn and her late husband, fantastic writing. I thought there. Something else I thought was very deliberate was the language that Crane used about trying to renovate the house when he said, just trying to fix the flu. I guess the house didn't like that. Definitely, again, putting it out there about the house being a character of its own, giving it these human-like characteristics. I also want to shout out Elizabeth Reeser, who plays Shirley. Her acting is phenomenal. Always has been, always have been a fan of hers. First time I ever saw her was in True Detective, which I think we're definitely going to cover on this show. Stay tuned. Uh, but she's uh, been in so much, and I think she's just she's just great. Uh, but then we get introduced to Kate Siegel's Theo, and admittedly, I fell in love with Kate right here the first time I saw this show. I do think it's interestingly touched on here without saying anything with Theo, where we see her gloves, uh, removing them just for the sex, and then putting them back on after her post-nut clarity. Then, then immediately talking about boundaries with Shirley. So very interesting, I thought. Very clever. I think that'll come back to come back to us. Yeah, uh, great job acting by the little girl. As soon as she opened her eyes and looked around, like she looked genuinely scared. I thought that was great. I think the kid coloring was either miscast or written wrong, though, because that kid is too damn old to be sitting in the floor coloring. Like, it, it really bothered me. Uh, I really like how the show transitions back and forth between or from the past to the present, that's very well done. And that continues through each episode. So tip of the cap to that. So funny story. I watched this show with the subtitles and it showed that the song that plays when Steven gets off the phone and it transitions to a bar is by Allison Wonderland. And it just always makes me remember. So a few years ago, I used to send out trivia to my office every Friday and I'll never forget that one time the opening round questions uh, included the question, what movie features the following three things, a Cheshire cat, a tea party, and an evil queen. And a girl in the office, one of my coworkers wrote Allison Wonderland. And I had to count <laughs> it wrong. I had to count it wrong. Like it was, but that shit is so funny. Anyway, Theodora is hot. Shout out Kate Siegel. Holy shit. But that outfit, the gloves up to the elbow. Yikes. Reminds me of one of my favorite Kenny Powers quotes. Sweetheart, I love you. I think you're a terrific girl. But you have clothes like a fucking dickhead. I think about that <laughs> quote a lot. And in this <laughs> in this episode, like I couldn't. That's the first thing that popped in my head. She's wearing these fucking gloves in the club. But then we get some lady loving. Not mad at it. And then she told her to kick rocks. Handled it like a G. Hell yeah. Took a page out of my playbook. This was an okay set of scenes. Not much happened really. But we're uh, honestly, I kind of started to forget this is a horror series. But I see a lot of groundwork being laid. Can we review Kenny Powers uh, next episode? Can we just do season one of that? <laughs> Dude, season one of Eastbound and Down is one of the best series seasons of all time. Of all time. <laughs> Nico, you ever seen uh, Eastbound and Down? Uh, just bits and pieces. Not enough of it. To, I've Dude, seen clips. A, no, I haven't watched it. The, along with that quote that I just said, there's another quote from Kenny Powers, and this that one's actually from season one, or this one's actually from season one that I think about all the time. When April's talking to him, he goes, listen up, you beautiful bitch. I'm about to fuck you up with some truth. And I'm <laughs> like, that lives rent free in my head. <laughs> All right. Jacksonville, Florida. Hugh Crane is sleeping in bed and we see a hand wrap around him and caress his face. He's alarmed and rolls over. He sees a woman who screams and he wakes up. His phone rings. It's Nell. She asks if he remembers the bent neck lady. She's back. He asks where she at and for her to go to Stevens. He's going to fly to L.A. and be there tomorrow. She apologizes for waking him, and we see her walk towards Hill House. Hugh gets dressed and packs a bag frantically. 
past Hugh wakes up Stephen and then closes the door, locking it. The, nor- the doorknob begins to spin as the men watch in fear. Hugh tells them we're going to run. He opens the door and says, I'm going to carry you and you keep your eyes closed no matter what. He runs down the hall and he opens his eyes and sees a woman running after them. Luke says he saw Abigail in the window. Hugh cranks the car up as the kids cry, asking, where's mom? Stephen sees a woman watching them from the window drive away. He cries out, asking about what about mom? Hugh tells Stephen he's closest to his sister and she needs him. However, Stephen isn't living at home. He sets the equipment up and lies down in the bed at Miss Walker's. He stares at the ceiling and closes his eyes. We see Nellie dancing through the abandoned house. 3.03 a.m. and all the Crane siblings awake and sit up suddenly. They know Nellie is in the red room of Hill House. Stephen has drops of water drip on his face and gets up. He stands on the bed, sees a leak, but is scared by a scream and a honking car. All right, Brian, what'd you think of those, those scenes? So very smart writing again, having another instance of that car horn as, as Hugh Crane wakes up from a metaphorical cry for help to a real cry from help with Nell calling him. And I'm going to be honest, no offense to Timothy Hutton playing Hugh, but there's no reason why Henry Thomas couldn't have played both young and hold Hugh. Like they don't, they don't look enough alike. In my opinion, it threw me off the first time I watched this. I thought there were two different people for a little bit. It's a little dramatic to switch actors, to be honest, like just especially with their that not that far apart in age. Come on. But anyway, that transition here from when Hugh opens the door to leave his hotel room, is it a hotel room or apartment or whatever? I don't know. But it goes from that emergency to young Elliot, I mean, young Hugh, opening the door to another emergency. And we get the first glimpse of that night. And on my first viewing, I mean, I'm like, fuck, like I'm hungry for some more details about that evening. Um, and there's so much dialogue about Stephen having his eyes closed and then being closed to so many things. And then, bam, another car horn scare. It was just, it was all so good. And last thing, jumping back and forth is driving me absolutely bonkers, but it's in a good way. As this episode is like really starting to ramp up right here, just in time for the third act and the finale. Yeah. um, So I just said that I'm starting to forget this as a horror series. And then I remember again immediately when he has the nightmare and then uh, Nell calls him talking about the Ben Nick lady. So great job to pull me back in. I'll tell you one thing, though. I'd be there in a heartbeat to console Nell. I'd even go as far as to say I love her. See what I do there? Love from you? Okay. Anyway, uh, this set of scenes is my favorite of the first episode. There's great tension immediately, and they maintain that nicely. Crazy when they all gasped for air and woke up at the same time because Nelly was in the red room. I like how that was shot. Then when the water drops from the ceiling, I had almost forgotten about that part of the story. They do a good job of having a lot of moving parts, but not overdoing any of them and keeping them just prevalent enough to dive back into without losing interest. So, like I said, this was my favorite set of scenes. All right, here's the last set of scenes for episode one. Next morning, he asked Miss Walker about the intersection where a stop sign used to be. He thinks she's experiencing things from the car horns outside and the leak in the roof. She asks about the man hanging from the ceiling. He says a grieving mind is a powerful thing. She grows angered by him not believing her. He admits he has seen ghosts, but not the typical way. He says most times a ghost is a wish. He signs her book, and we see a flashback of Shirley pissed off, slamming the Hill House script in front of him. Shirley is fuming mad at Stephen, saying she's abusing privacy of the family. Lee defends her husband, and Stephen says he wants to support his own family. Stephen says mom was mentally ill and calls Shirley mentally ill, too. Shirley tells him her thoughts and doesn't approve it. Stephen tells Miss Walker he'll write her story and promises to be respectful, and a way Carl would have liked it. Past Hugh is telling his lawyer the story and says Stephen didn't see anything. Lawyer is frustrated having no case. The tabloids are killing them. Hugh says only the police can go near the house. I want the gates and doors locked at all, all the time. No staff except the Dudleys. Stephen calls Lee and warns her Nellie may show up to the house. She hangs up on him. Miss Dudley is arranging the china for Hugh to sell it. She tells Stephen the Hills lived here all alone. Stephen doesn't believe they were too afraid of the dark. They play with Ouija boards and tarot cards for fun. She tells him the world is dark and they need the light of Jesus Christ. Olivia walks in saying he knows the Gospels and other religions. She asks about Luke and Stephen finds him in the treehouse. Luke doesn't like it inside. Stephen grows alarmed seeing drawings Luke did of a girl in the woods. 
Luke says she's not imaginary and if he'll hang out with him, no girls allowed. Steven goes into his apartment complex and Luke is standing on the stairs shivering with Steven's camera and iPad. He offers him $200 but says the iPad stays and he can sell that old camera. Luke apologizes, stressing it isn't what he thinks. He hands him the camera and leaves. Steven finds his door lock has been broken and Nellie is in his apartment too. He asks her question after question, but she doesn't answer. Dad calls and says she was lying. She wasn't in L.A. She was at the house. She's dead. Steven turns around and Nell appears with a ghostly face and he falls over in fear. Dad is on the phone calling his name. Steve, you there? All right, Brian, that's the last set of scenes for this episode. What'd you think? So, yeah, more just really smart writing. I think as we get Steven here, you know, the, the morning explaining how the lack of a stop sign and the water dripping alters the lady's perception into seeing a ghost. But then we get Nell dancing away and we see her perception is also being altered by the house just immediately after. Uh, but there's just so many transitions in the set of scenes and really just all throughout the series. Like they're amazing. Uh, a lot of foreshadowing here too on stuff that you won't catch until your second series watch through like mentions of the treehouse where we find out later, but Stevie noticing the the picture drawn with the open mouth, very similar to the black woman's husband's mouth, open mouth. And, you know, as we see here too, Nell's open mouth. Uh, once again, just symbolic of the mouth of Hill House trying to consume the whole entire family. You know, never seen a ghost before. Yeah, I would, I would say Stephen has now. <laughs> the transitions of these characters like throughout the series are, are just amazing. Like Stephen is definitely the most like his father. Uh, he's the most grounded. And you know, we found out in this one through all the shit that these kids went through as kids in that house He's still not seeing a ghost because his eyes were closed. Like he still has his quote unquote eyes closed per se to everything, not just physically. But yeah, like this is definitely a great cliffhanger. I think that tells us, okay, you know, Nellie's gonzo now. And like the title of the episode, Stephen finally opens his eyes. Like this series opens with him answering Nell's like literal cry for help. But the series, this episode, not the series, the episode ends with him not answering the cry from help from Nell when it obviously it mattered the most. Great fucking start to a great fucking ep- series. Great fucking series. Hey, man, we get our first F-bomb here. I love it. More, more profanity is always welcome in shows to me. Like, it's just how people really talk. A lot of times uh, a series doesn't do that, and that's a big pet peeve of mine. Uh, we get good dynamic between Steven and Cheryl. Feels real. Thought that was really well done. When the kid is writing the sign that says no girls uh, allowed, that was the most chaotic way I've ever seen someone write a G. Holy shit, that was wild. <laughs> uh, Nell just standing in the living room in the dark is creepy as hell, especially if you've seen you. Just got the feeling she's about to stab. Uh, we get a crazy twist that Nell is dead. Then she suddenly appears in front of Steve, and they do a great job with the effects on her face. Then she disappears. That was a really well done part. And it's a great way to end the episode. It's not the best first episode I've ever seen, but I liked it enough to want to watch more. All right, guys, that's the end of episode one. Do y'all got any fun facts you would like to share? Yeah, I got a, a couple here. Uh, in the first episode, the the Lazar, Lazar, is it Lazar Glass or Lazar Glass? Which one is it? I can't remember. From Oculus. Uh, it can be seen on the wall of the Hill House while Nell... Uh, Victoria Pendretti is uh, dancing through it. Both Oculus 2013 and Haunting of Hill House, obviously directed by Mike Flanagan. And in the first episode, when young Luke Julian Hilliard is playing in the treehouse, he has an E.T. metal lunchbox in front of him. On the lunchbox, a portrait of Henry Thomas, who plays young Hugh Crane. So I'm going to take over and... If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences 
each day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do the scene by scene for episode two. Before we do that, you guys have any thoughts on episode two? What I liked about this episode is that it didn't focus as much as the first one on the scary version of the house and all the scary shit. But like this second episode, it was really good diving into more of the the backstories and really cementing like for me who each person was because you know and you you said you were struggling with that a little bit in episode one. I'm horrible with that. Like it always takes me forever in a series to get names right and shit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm a, I'm a fan of all these episodes. I won't hold you up too long just because you know like Brian mentioned I've seen this before. I love all the characters the kids and the adults i think they did fantastic with the casting uh flanagan kills it and uh, i'm excited to review this yeah so for me uh like i said i like this episode a lot more we got back into the story more and got some more depth into the current happenings uh the last episode just wasn't enough to fully hook me but this one definitely has my attention so if you guys are ready i'll go ahead and jump into the scene by scene So the show opens with Shirley waking up from a sleep in the middle of the night with a gasp saying Nellie's in the red room and her husband confused as hell. It's 3.03 a.m. Then we get our opening credits before hearing Max tell Shirley in Methuen, Massachusetts that Grandma is dead and he knows it. She has no teeth and no hair. Shirley understands. She tells him that an open casket is a great chance to replace the bad memories with a better picture of her and that she'll fix her. She explains the body preparing process, and then we cut back to Hill House and Olivia sketching out floor plans for their a badass forever house. Nellie comes in asking for a tea party, but Shirley isn't interested, and Olivia is too busy. The girls go outside, and Nellie is going uh, going on about tea parties, and Shirley has finally had enough and pawns Nellie off on Theo. Luke is in the grass playing with action figures, and we he sees another kid off in the distance, and he waves at them. Hugh tells Mr. Dudley that the key for upstairs doesn't work, but there's not another one to try. Shirley goes into the woods and finds a cemetery in a shed. Inside the shed, she finds a litter of kittens and gets freaked out by a wasp nest under a table. It was built around a Halloween mask. Cheryl asks about the kittens, and then we flash back to the present. Adult Cheryl's son protests the blank mask that he's being forced to use for his Halloween party before giving up. Kevin tells Cheryl that she's got to cut, uh, cut out the charity and start charging full price, and then Max's dad drops off a box of jewelry for the funeral. And Cheryl sees Ryan sitting on the couch with a drink before disappearing. That's the opening set of scenes. What do you guys think? Pretty cool thing about this series is that each kid gets an episode. Like Steven getting the first one. Uh, this one's Shirley's. Uh, the third one's Theo's. The fourth one's Luke. And then the, five, the fifth one's Nellie's. But get, it, it gives each one of these siblings a backstory. And I think that perfectly sets it up for the rest of the series without a lot of those filler episodes that you know you get in a lot of shows um all of these are important to the to the plot and i love that i mean we were just talking earlier today about some series having 20 plus episodes and and you know and something like that there's probably 15 of them that are just filler episodes and don't go along with the main plot uh i'm glad i'm i'm very glad this doesn't do that plus it's non-linear so that helps keeps it interesting just by itself even i mean for me anyway and so while the first one was about seeing or not seeing and, you know, Steven's eyes being closed, this one is definitely about listening and, and hearing basically what she wants to, you know, w- with something I didn't even know until later, but I think is very cool. Now, each one of these siblings representing the five stages of grief, uh, Shirley definitely represents denial. Just not, it's not just a river in Egypt folks. Another great transition, though, from from Shirley's embalming tools to Olivia's drafting table tools. Once again, we get her describing Hill House with human characteristics like Stephen did in the first one or like you did in the first one. Uh, More subtle writing cues that that make the house a character. I love that. Um, A little Easter egg here and I'll shut up in this set of scenes. Theo uh, on the wall. Perhaps that brick wall she suggested putting up when when it came to Luke last episode. But she's actually reading The Lottery, which is also written by Shirley Jackson, who wrote 
obviously the OG haunting book like we talked about. All right, just starting off, I love the color saturation as Shirley is chatting with Max. Elizabeth Reeser is so good talking to this little boy, grieving over his dead grandma, comforting him with the quality of care she's going to provide. Uh, Elizabeth Reeser is great. Lulu Wilson does great as young Shirley. I agree 100% with Brian. As he mentioned, I love all these kids. They've been in so many things that I like outside of this show. But she does great as young Shirley. I've been a big fan of her for years from Ouija, of or- Ouija Origin of Evil, uh, Annabelle Creation, uh, Haunting of Hill House. She's an incredible young actress. Violet McGraw is inc- is absolutely adorable. And it breaks my heart that no one will have a tea party with her. Who could tell her that little girl no? Brian, would you tell your Me. daughter no? Of course you wouldn't. The actual Hill House looks so good. <laughs> <laughs> we know you don't claim your kids, Dustin. The actual no, no. Hill House looks so good. I know this may seem minute, but I love the camera work circling around young Luke as he sits in the grass. It's a great angle and just an added detail by Flanagan that makes this enjoyable to watch. We get some adorable little kitties. That's one of the creepiest looking wasp nests I've ever seen. And is it just me or are old school cameras a staple of horror and find them creepy? I do. I know Brian can relate to Hugh Crane. I don't want no damn cats, but the daughter is putting that charm and the sweet eyes to work on her daddy. Gotta hate that shit, but what can you do? We're in the black, something I know my rich co-host can't relate to. Shout out to my rich co-host. Shirley being visibly shaken by this ghost man on the couch. I hate to think the worst or spoil anything for Dustin, but I think we know what it is. This is going to be mostly a love fest for me this entire series, but I thought this was a good opening of episode two. Kevin comes back in with a box of jewelry after walking Max's dad out and asks if Cheryl ever talked to Nellie. She says no, but she talked to Luke, who's in rehab for the umpteenth time, and she's fine. He takes the box downstairs, and then we go to six years ago when Cheryl and Steven are talking to a rehab facility about the cost for Luke's rehab since he doesn't have insurance. $6,000 a month is insane. Luke gets hugs and reassurance from his siblings before getting checked in for his first stint, and we flash back to the present. At dinner, we see that the blank generic mask from earlier now has lame written across the forehead in red. Cheryl's daughter, Allie, is wearing gloves like Aunt Theo now. Great. Teaching her uh, niece to be a weirdo. Some fun family dynamic at this dinner with Jaden getting in trouble and Theo and Allie tossing their Brussels sprouts over their shoulders. After Allie asks for cookies and milk, we get a natural segue back to the past when Cheryl was feeding the kittens with a milk dropper. Later, Theo bursts into Cheryl's room and asks why she was banging on the wall. But Cheryl is confused, and then the banging starts and freaks them both out. It sounded like the Kool-Aid man is two seconds away from making an appearance. Hugh comes in to check out what all the commotion's about and tells him it was just the pipes before he glitches and gets a demon face. An adult Cheryl wakes up from a nightmare. Stephen calls Cheryl and tells her that Nell is dead. She killed herself. Cheryl tells him he's wrong. Steve tells her he's sorry, and Cheryl says she told him she was in trouble. After the call, Cheryl goes outside to Theo's and the light comes on as she approaches. Go ahead. First off, $6,000 a month. Look, Mike told me one time that that was his mortgage payment. Shout out his free internet. Uh, I guess that was a fun fact, but here's another fun fact though. This treatment center here for Luke is called the Sanderson clinic. Sanderson was Luke's last name in Shirley Jackson's OG novel. Coincidentally, the last name of Nico's favorite three sisters as well. And another example of Shirley's denial here with finding the checkbook and saying, it's probably nothing, you know, but then we get another amazing transition from the carton of milk to the milk with her feeding the kittens. God, I thought that was beautiful and well done and done so many times throughout the series. Uh, The parallels to the same amount of kittens as kids is a great touch as well. And coincidentally, one of them passing away tragically early was a nice touch as well. No. Anyone? Although I don't know if we're picking, you know, least favorite kill, but the kitten is mine. I'm calling it right meow if we do. But that scary ass fucking dream spilling over uh, to the phone call where she goes right back into denial saying, you know, they must have gotten it wrong. Elizabeth just kills that scene. Like she acts her ass off right there. And it is very moving. It's very moving to me. That scene is Man, starting off, I just wrote, holy shit, $6,000 a month for rehab. That's expensive. But then, you know, like Dust, he just texts in our group chat. But I actually Googled it, and 6000 is actually really cheap. A lot of places really can be cheap. like ten to 30000 a month, which is yep. – I thought that couldn't be a serious price. No way they actually care about getting someone help if that's real. 
And I wrote for six K a month. You better damn have horseback riding now. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Lord have mercy. If this isn't a white people dinner that will get roasted on Twitter, Twitter, excuse me. Come on, Charlotte. You got to put some seasoning on this damn dinner. No wonder they're throwing this shit on the ground. The kids feeding the kittens milk is such a cute scene. I can't say this enough and brag on Mike Flanagan for these casting choices. You know, he makes you care about these characters. And like Brian's mentioned so many times in the past, and he does a great job in this show because you only get 10 episodes, but you care about every single character, whether they're a kid or an adult. He does a great job of writing. Young Theo is such a bitch, but McKenna Grace kills it. These bangs on the wall are truly terrifying, and both girls are phenomenal. We've discussed so many times in the past on child actors and how they can make or break a movie or a show and portraying fear believably, and they both do great with it. Come on, Dad. Hot water pipes? Be serious, man. Oh, okay. It's a nightmare. But the creepy face Hugh makes was a nice touch. But I thought with hot water pipes, that was a that was a terrible excuse for what they just went through. Great job of acting between Stephen and Shirley discussing Nell's suicide. I love this part of the episode. Great acting. A truly horrific phone call to get, and they nail it. Elizabeth Reeser with some very strong emotional acting to end this set of scenes. She doesn't get enough flowers for being a great actress, but I'm going to give her some flowers. She, she's fantastic. Back in the past, young Cheryl wakes up in the morning and checks out the ki- or checks on the kittens. Man down. One of them didn't make it. Hugh digs a grave, and Olivia brings out a cat coffin. The parents explain a eulogy to Cheryl, and I couldn't help but think of that episode of The Office when they have the bird funeral. Cheryl gives the kitten a proper goodbye, and the kitten's lips start moving. But it's not a Lazarus situation. It's just a big-ass bug crawling out of his uh, dead kitten's mouth. Cheryl screams, and then we flash back to the present. Adult Cheryl tells Andy to go pick up the body. Cody, uh, Kevin, Cody, who the hell's Cody? Kevin talks to, or tries to talk to Cheryl about doing her sister's funeral, but she's not having it. We find out Luke has ditched rehab, and they're not sure if he knows Nellie is dead or not. At Max's grandmother's funeral, he doesn't want to approach the empty casket. Cheryl tells him he'll regret not going up if he doesn't, and we get a flashback to young Shirley refusing to go to her mother's casket. Adult Shirley is arguing with Kevin again about preparing Nellie's body, and she's not backing down. Nellie's body is taken out of the van, and Theo can't deal with it. She leaves. Cheryl pauses for a moment before opening the body bag, and when she does, we see Nellie's face is in rough shape. Back up to, or back to the past, and young Cheryl and Nellie check on the kittens, but they're all dead and gone. Oh, all dead but one. And the sole survivor's eyes go into evil mode, causing Shirley to let out a scream. We immediately flash back to the present, and Shirley is telling Stephen he has got to get there. She's elbow deep in her sister's chest cavity, and he has to get two men to the airport. Get it done. She hangs up. Flashback to the past again, and Olivia is telling Cheryl that the dead kittens are better off, and the one with the devil eyes has a new home. This doesn't sit well with Cheryl, and she snaps on Olivia, sending her into some migraine episode. Later, she tells Hugh it was all black, and he says he wishes he was a part of the conversation with Cheryl. This causes an argument about him letting Cheryl keep the kittens in the first place. I don't miss that aspect of my marriage at all. My man didn't deserve that. That's that set of scenes. What do you guys think? <laughs> man, that kitten scene is the worst. Man, why are you showing that Flanagan? Damn. But something, again, I didn't notice my first watch through is that it was the reason why Shirley didn't take that box of jewelry in the last set of scenes, because now we see that it was very similar to the kitten's casket. But man, that scene with the bug coming out of kitten's mouth. Come on, man. That was fucking gross. Sidebar, but not really sidebar. I think wakes are fucking weird. Like, I I think it's wrong of them to make Max want to go up there to see his grandma. Um, Everything they're saying is wrong in my opinion, but it's a show. So I guess that's why this was a sidebar. But another little tidbit, the funeral director in Shirley's flashback who escorts young Shirley to view her mother's body in the casket is played by James Flanagan, Mike Flanagan's brother. Also definitely picked up on the line from Olivia here after the kittens die where she says they aren't supposed to be without their mommies. That obviously mirroring how much of a mess the Crane family is without their mother. But I also picked up and did like the way that Shirley handled the explaining death, like doing the opposite of what her mother did, which was lie to the kids. Parenting's hard, man. That scene with Olivia and, and Hugh in the bed and him saying, that was definitely not our finest hour. Like, that shit really hit home with me. Like, I felt that. Another great group of scenes, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because I was going to ask your perspective at the end of my at, at the end of my notes. Very sweet of Olivia making the special box to bury the dead kitten and thoughtful of Hugh to dig a grave and encourage his daughter to give the eulogy. 
I really enjoyed that moment of parenthood between them. The bug crawling out of the mouth was a nice moment of tension for Shirley. I know it has to be hard for a kid to process death. Hard to argue with Shirley. You can't wait forever for Luke to get it together when he's continued to relapse. Nell and the family deserve their peace too. But just a disclaimer, I'm not downplaying addiction. I know it's very difficult to overcome and heartbreaking to witness from the outside. I'm not sure who to side with here, Shirley or Kevin. I can understand both point of views. I couldn't imagine preparing my little sister's corpse for her funeral. And like Dustin mentioned, good Lord, Nellie's face looks horrific. And then after just seeing that, I really, I wrote, I really don't think I could prepare her body for the funeral. I'd be crying the entire time. I, I wouldn't be able to focus and do a good job. Another nice jump scare by Flanagan with a kitten. I understand Shirley is dealing with a lot, but it's not easy to just find someone who's ran away. It's not like playing Marco Polo or something. Come on, Shirley. This is a serious moment, but I chuckled seeing Olivia's eyes begin to twitch, the joy of parenting. And I was like, Jesus, codeine for a migraine? She ain't fucking around. I'm not a parent, but I think the parents are being hard on themselves. Both are trying to be nice to Shirley, and the worst outcome happened. I think they deserve a little bit of a pass. And like I mentioned, I just wanted to hear your perspective, but you already touched on that, Brian, so I appreciated it. All right, so you put a disclaimer there. I want to back up and put a disclaimer to something we talked about a minute ago. I texted about the cost of rehab. I just want to clarify. It's not for me. I've never been to rehab. I'm not going to rehab. It's for a, uh, for someone I know we've been trying to find a facility for him. So rest assured I'm fine. Um, this set of scenes is the ending. Let's get to it. Cheryl is sewing up Nellie's noggin in back, uh, in present day. And she sees a head poke into the door and then leave. It's her nosy ass jet spying on her. They're not allowed down there, but they're curious. She tells them, she just embalmed her and she's sad. She tells them to go pick out their favorite pictures of Nell so she can hang them at the funeral and gets back to work. As she applies makeup to the corpse, we get a glimpse of Cheryl doing Nellie's makeup before her wedding. Steve comes in to give some typical pre-wedding banter and then we see a cab pull up. Cheryl rushes out to stop Luke from coming in and she gives him some money and tells him to fuck off. Back in the present, Cheryl cries and apologizes and a big ass bug crawls out of Nellie's mouth. Cheryl scoots away, but we see that it didn't really happen. It was a hallucination. Cheryl cries, and then we cut to Olivia's funeral, and Cheryl cries as she walks up to the casket. She's amazed that the mortician fixed her face. Present day, Cheryl's work is done, and as she walks out, she sees Olivia's body on a table beside Nellie. Olivia sits up and smiles and offers a purple jewelry box from Max's grandmother. The lid springs open for a split second, and a cat meows, and when Cheryl turns the lights back on, Olivia's gone. Cheryl sits at a table looking at a picture of Nellie for a minute before we turning off the lights and heading upstairs. As she does, we see the model of the forever home and a light flickers on the porch. And that's the end. So I don't really have a lot of set on this set of scenes, like even though it was the end, you know, I definitely noticed Nell's dead body wearing a red shirt since she was completely consumed by Hill House. But the rest of this is really just showing Shirley, you know, and her desire to fix things, you know, fixing Nell's wedding by kicking high Luke out which by the way, I have no memory. This is what I was talking about earlier. I have no memory as to what happened to Nell's husband. So this watch through is going to be like me seeing that for the first time. I do not remember whatsoever what happened to him. Uh, you know, but, but also showing where uh, Shirley first realized that she wanted to be that quote fixer. But damn, man, like the last jump scare with Olivia and the kitten. Whew, I mean, that one definitely got me. Basically another great episode. The next one being about Theo and, I'm excited about jumping back into this series as a whole. Yeah, same, brother. Another compliment to Flanagan and the crew. This Nelly body looks great, and the effects are great as Charlie performs the autopsy. Why did she die? That's a tough question to answer to your kids, the niece and nephew of the victim, who are so young. I would hate to give that speech. I think it's a great idea for Charlie to get the kids involved and having them pick their favorite picture of Nell to use at the funeral. I did like that. I agree, Stephen. Nelly does look amazing, with all due respect, of course. Also, break a leg, that's such an odd phrase for good luck. That's always bothered me. I do have a nitpick. I find it hard to believe Nellie didn't see Luke get out of this cab. I do feel horrible for Luke. He wants to support his sister, but I totally understand Shirley's frustrations with him. Living with the guilt that he missed her wedding now has to be gut-wrenching for her. Don't feel bad, Shirley. I'm scared of big-ass bugs, too. But serious note, great callback of her childhood trauma dealing with death. I'd shit myself seeing my mother's dead ghost corpse in this embalming room. And it's another good scare with a cat meow, like Brian mentioned. Great way to end the episode with the forever home flashing the porch light twice. Time to come home. I thought I thought that was awesome. I love the ending. That is awesome. Yeah, I agree. 
All right, guys, let's jump into our social media comments and questions. We don't have that many. We'll jump on Twitter, X first. Andrew Ferguson, big fan of the show, comment. I have a hard time binge-watching shows, but I forced myself to when Hill House was announced for HHN 2021. Did not regret it. God, I wish I could have went to that. I regret not going to that. Sean, the Glee Man commented, this show is so freaking good. I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on all the hidden ghosts. Yes, sir, it is very, very good. I agree 100%. We'll jump over to Facebook now. Michelle Merza commented, I love this show so much. I can't wait. And Joe Swinford, another big fan of the show. I really like this series. Very excited for this new series of the pod. Come on, Stranger Things. And I know Dustin can't wait for that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Got any fun facts? I only have the one for this episode. Um, Harris Funeral Home is a nod to Julie Harris, who played Eleanor in 1963's The Haunting. All right, that's the first two episodes of The Haunting of Hill House. This is our first episode of DGOT, the series. I think it went well uh, outside of me not knowing how to work a computer anymore. Uh, any thoughts, guys, on just the, the first episode? I thought it went well. I think we're going to do a great job, like always. It's one of those things. It's like we were kind of unsure how it was going to play out, but now that we've got this one under our belt, I think it's it's going to be really good. I will say that the first two episodes of The Haunting of Hill House, like I – I've only watched the first three, did my notes on the first three episodes. And so it's kind of killing me. I want to jump back in and finish it, but I don't want to, cause I don't want to have to watch, watch it, you know, back to back. Right. That close together. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I would, I, I don't want you to, to binge it because I want to see your reactions and opinions after you go through each, each episode. Yeah. And yeah, that's what because, we're going to get. And it was hard for me not to like, jump in like the middle of your scene by scene or your notes when you thought something was weird or something like that, because it's explained later on, like Theo's gloves, I guess they're going to explain why oh, she yeah. wears the gloves. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, in, uh, I've seen episode three and I have thoughts on that. So we'll get to that next week. And I'm, t- I hate to jump ahead, but five and six is my shit. I can't wait. And before we get out of here, I just want to give a quick shout out to our blood donors. Y'all take a huge burden off of us. Make, uh, like, like we can't stress enough, you help us pay the bills. It's not free to do this, and we really appreciate you guys. Uh, Anita Russell is a final girl donor. We'll be doing her review, Pitch Black, in a few weeks. Camper Level Reoccurring, Clayton J., Nina, Michelle Merza, the Horror Movie Crew Podcast, Alex Seligson, and Michael Evans. Camp Counselor Reoccurring, Edwin Hernandez-Gunn, Joe Swinford, Shan, Adrian Aiello, Karen, Brian Samick, Andrew Ferguson, Matt Strickland, Brooke Maley, Thorne, David Phillips, and Heather Superdoc. We really appreciate y'all's support. It means a lot. If you want to become a blood donor, check out our website, don'tgooutthere.com. All you got to do is just go to the website. It's right there. And if you want ad-free content, become a blood donor. We'll give you ad-free episodes. Uh, I really appreciate the guys doing the show with me. I really appreciate the fans and uh, how much you wanted us to do this as well. We really appreciate the support. Uh, I'm excited for the future, and y'all have a good one. We appreciate you listening. Just want to remind everybody. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.